Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Well, good morning. Before, we, uh, before I get into 1 Corinthians 10, I just wanted to uh, say thank you to all of you who uh, were part of the uh, Pastor Appreciation um, that was, that was just so nice, you know, was, and just on behalf of Jojo and Doug and me, we really appreciate your thinking of us, just your putting yourself out there for us. That was, that was great. Um, we're going on in our series in 1 Corinthians, and uh, today we're going to be hitting 1 Corinthians 10. Whoops, there we go. And uh, really, we're going to see three things in this, this section of the chapter that I'm going to share with you here. First of all, we're going to look at what Paul's greatest uh, fear was, what his greatest worry was. And then we're going to look at four warning signs that he draws from this, and then look at uh, where our true hope actually lies. So first of all, I want to talk about uh, Paul's greatest worry. And I'm going to take you back to um, uh, the beginning of September, I believe it was. This is the United States Tennis Open. And uh, Novak Djokovic is the guy who's favored to win this thing. There's a $3 million purse here, by the way. This is, this is big bucks. So he sails through the first three rounds. He's, you know, it looks like he's going to go all the way with this thing. And then uh, in the fourth round, uh, during this game, he gets kind of frustrated at a, at a particular point. And he just, without looking, he just kind of swats a ball backwards. And it nails this line judge right in the throat knocks her off her seat. She's acting like this has killed her. And eventually, um, they disqualified him uh, for that. There is some kind of bylaw in tennis um, that talks about things like this. And uh, he forfeited the 165000 he'd won already from winning the first three rounds, and plus his chance to win the millions that he could have won anyway. Disqualified. And that's Paul's biggest fear, too, um, and if we look at the last couple verses of chapter 9, that's what Paul, he's using sports metaphors here, and he says, he says, so I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should do. And then he says this, otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified, disqualified. You know, after this big teaching ministry that he's got, I mean, it's fantastic influence, the way he's been used mightily by God, and he's going, I want to finish well. I don't want to get DQ'd at the end. I think about that, you know, and that's something that you and I need to think about too as people who have walked with the Lord. And Paul's looking back to the past and what it was like for their ancestors who went through a similar experience to what Paul went through and what you and I have gone through. And he says in chapter 10, verse 1, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. He's using the same kind of terminology that we think of in our walk with the Lord as it began and the Lord drew us out of the world and out of the darkness and into his family. Uh, and he talks about that miraculous deliverance, you know, the two million that, that went through the Red Sea and delivered out of slavery and from the Egyptians. 
And he says, all of them ate the same spiritual food and all of them drank the same spiritual water for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them and that rock was Christ. They're sustained by God himself, right? Yet, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. And if you know the story, you know out of the two million that started, you know, and if we think about this like a marathon, you know, just this huge marathon, two million people take off at the beginning and they're all shooting to finish that race. And what happened at the end? There's two left, two out of two million. And Paul's going, wow, that's a, that's a scary story. That's a bracing story. And so he, he draws from that story some lessons for himself for his hearers in, in Corinth, and also, by extension, for you and me. Four warning signs that come from the failure of these guys who didn't finish the race, who were left dead in the desert and never made it to the promised land. And where it starts, I think, is where it always starts, right? Idolatry. Uh, he says in verse 6, these things happened as a warning to us so we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. This whole idea of idolatry, just let me give you a, maybe just a fresh image for that. Um, big controversial story during the time of Confucius in China. So there was this guy, uh, they called him Upright Gong. Upright Gong, probably because of this upright character, right? His father... Um, stole a sheep. And Upright Gong became aware of that, so he turned his father into the authorities. Now the Moists, big philosophical school at the time, they're like into the law, and uh, they're into the societal overall good, and they're going, Upright Gong did the right thing. You know, he, he put the needs of society ahead of the needs of his father, and he followed the law and upheld that, and that's the stability, you know, that gives our culture, that gives our culture stability. Confucius said, no, upright gong did the wrong thing. He said, family comes before everything else. That's the linchpin that holds together all of society ultimately. And what upright gong should have done was he should have gone to his father and remonstrated with him, but never go to the authorities. So what do we do as Christians as we look at this? The needs of society, the needs of our families, and our, our love for them, kind of the same uh, thing that we went through at Thanksgiving, you know? We're looking, okay, the society as a whole, we're thinking of our families and stuff. What do we do? Well, you know, as, as followers of Jesus, it's really neither one, is it? Neither one is the primary good. You know, there's a place for society, there's a place for family, but Jesus said, you know, who you serve is me. You serve me first. And to become a follower of Jesus means we reorient everything, and he comes first. He's going, family's good, society's good, law is good, but you must follow me. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not fit to be my disciple. And so we look at idolatry as putting anything in the place where Jesus is supposed to be, right? Anything that's taking the place of, the, of his rule in our lives, anything that takes, takes the place of the fulfillment that he brings and the comfort that he brings. And not only things that come above him, but things that just go alongside him. 
And I think idolatry essentially is saying, you know, Jesus is not enough. You know, we say like, well, you know, Jesus is good, and he's done this, done that for me, but I, I couldn't live without this relationship. I couldn't live without financial security. I couldn't live without having being physically healthy. I couldn't live without my family. I couldn't live without this, without that. That's idolatry, and that's where the people of Israel were back in the day. And that's what Paul's warning us about, too, because things, our desires don't change, do they? We have to keep these things really in order. And that, what's interesting here is that he says, okay, he talks about idolatry, and then he says, as the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revel revelry, and we must not engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. And he kind of links this whole idea of idolatry with this indulgence in evil desires, you know, in, in disobedience. And so he, he links it up with the sexual immorality that they went into and the, the kind of partying that just took over their lives. And it's interesting, you know, how does this connection actually work? You know, in Romans, uh, Paul talks about this in another connection. And he talks about the progression that goes. And just follow along with this. This is Romans 1, verse 21. He says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools and instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Um, Paul says at the start of this thing, he goes, you know, everybody kind of knows there's a God there. I mean, you look at the irreducible complexity of the universe, you're going, there's got to be some kind of supernatural mind behind this whole thing. There's got to be. But we tend to suppress that, don't we? Because we're going like, you know what, I don't want a God makes me uncomfortable. I'd rather go my own way. And so when we begin to suppress this, and you know, if you've talked to people who are going, yeah, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. If you talk to them long enough and you start peeling away at that, you start realizing, you know, there's, a, there's an idea here of like, I want to run my own life. I don't, have, I don't have room for a God. God's a luxury I can't afford. But when you deny God, what happens next? You, that God need in you has, wells up and it's, it expresses itself in other ways and so we latch on to other things as our gods, right? And so he says they begin to create these other idols to, made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. You know, we're more sophisticated than they were back in the Old Testament days, right? So our idols are more abstract. You know, it's the, the, uh, the careers in our lives, you know, and the relationships and things like that, but they're still idols that take the place of God. And then it says, so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. So what happens is, when we deny the existence of God, what happens, we have these other things, and then the restraints that once kept us from acting on those impulses that we've got, those temptations, those evil desires that kind of lurk out there and within us, those things get weaker and weaker. And pretty soon, 
we start going down the path here of just indulging those desires that really, in the final analysis, aren't good for us. It's almost like God is saying, look, at you're demanding to have your own way and to have your own self-created God. I'm going to let you see what happens when you do that. You know, see how that works for you. See what happens when you indulge in pornography. See what happens when you indulge in, in the, the life of drug abuse and alcoholism and all these other desires that, that come against us. You know, the classic example of this from literature is uh, Crime and Punishment, the great novel by Dostoevsky. And in, uh, in this novel, he, he, he has this character named Raskolnikov. And Raskolnikov has got this thing where he's going, like, I wonder what it would be like to murder somebody. I mean, what would that be? What would this sensation be? And could I do it and just walk away from it and be calm? He said, I think I could do it. I think I could do it. But he can't bring himself to do it until he finally gets past this idea that there's a God. And when he finally comes to the conclusion that God does not exist, and he, he keeps thinking about this thing from John 11 where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. He's going, nah, that, that is not true. And when he finally gets to the point of believing that, then he's, the restraints come down and he's able to commit this horrible axe murder that he commits. And then, of course, he pays the price for that. The restraints come down. So the idolatry, and then there's the indulgence in those desires. And, the, and Paul's going, hey, if you start seeing these things in your life where you're going in the, you know, you're, you're putting other things, or you're saying, I've got to have these things. You know, Jesus isn't enough. And he's, he's saying, if you're starting to see these desires starting to have this place in your life where you're, you're yielding more and more to them, he's going, that's a warning sign. Look out. And then he, he adds this later on in the chapter, and he gives an insight here into this whole idea of idols and the demonic. And he says, what am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God, and I don't want you to participate with demons. He's going, you know, behind the idols these dead things, there's actually something supernatural going on. And so the demonic gets involved. You know, the Greeks were onto this, the ancient Greeks, and they called getting intoxicated the divine madness. They said, you know, when you get drunk, it's like there's something supernatural is involved there. And they called it the divine madness. You know, we don't call it getting high for nothing. You know, we sense that there's something weird going on there, right? They, they coined a word, enthusiasm, which we've taken into our language. Literally, it means God enters you. And they said when a person gets intoxicated, a God enters them. And you can see if that's true, and Paul's talking about that in, uh, you know, when he, when he talks about that in 1 Corinthians. That's why it's so hard when people get involved in things that they get addicted to these pleasures, how hard it is to break free. Because something's happened in the supernatural realm. It's, it's got a hold on them. And so hard, they try and they try, and it's just like something's holding me back. All of these addictions when we give in to these forbidden desires. 
And that's why Paul warns it later on in the chapter. He says, you cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do you think we're stronger than he is? I mean, there's times we go like, you know what? I, yeah, I want, I want to feed on the Lord. I want to be sustained by him. But I still want to get high in these other ways. And he's going like, don't do that. What do you think you're doing? You're trying to feast at both tables? It's a dangerous way to go. And then he says in verse 9, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and then died from snake bites. And the third thing he warns about is testing God. Testing God, it's like testing God's patience. You can think about it in those terms. Those of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about here, where your kids sometimes... They'll test you, right? So they'll do something, and then you go, don't do that, and they'll kind of test you again and again, you know, and how long can I get away with this? We do that too, you know, as, as adults, right? So we go like, wow, I did that wrong thing? Man, it didn't seem to be any bad consequences or that many. I'll do it again, you know, and we're, we're testing God's patience right there. I'll, let me give you a, an analogy here from my experience with AT&T. So I mentioned a, f- a, few, a few weeks ago that I'd finally like broken my, up my relationship with them after a bad two years of going with them. And um, anyway, I see this little ad here. It says, together we'll deliver the unexpected. So let me, let me tell you how they were true to their words that they delivered the unexpected. On September 26th, that was the, I had paid through then to AT&T for this bundle with with a phone and TV and computer, right? And two days before, I called AT&T and I canceled the whole thing. They said, okay, you're canceled. Uh, we will send you an email. You're all the way paid up. We'll send you an email, tell you how do you return all your equipment. They sent it. I returned it dutifully to my FedEx office, got receipts for that. And I thought, okay, we're done. It's all over between me and them. No, about two weeks later, I get a bill. for services in October. So I call AT&T and I talk to this individual and I said, you know what, I got this bill, but I'm done and you know you canceled me out. That happened on the 24th and I I have no services for October. And oh, sir, that is a mistake. Um, We're sorry about that happening. You will receive a final bill in the mail in just two weeks. You know, that will just show you that everything's fine. I said, okay, very good. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And so a couple weeks go by, and I get the bill in the mail. I open it up, $104.95. So I call AT&T again, and I talk to another individual. And I go, look, I talked to this person two weeks ago. I said, this woman said, I am a billing specialist. And I can assure you that that's an incorrect bill. And so you'll be receiving that final bill in the mail in a couple of weeks. And I said, you know, I heard that before. I hope you're telling, you know, this is true. Oh, oh yes, you will be getting that. You have my assurance on that. I said, thank you. And so I waited. And a couple weeks later, this is like end of October now, I'm getting, I get another bill. I open it up, $104.95. So I call AT&T again. And I talk to a guy named Bob. And uh, he doesn't sound like Bob, but, you know, they have this names all over the world, apparently. And so, um, I, so I'm talking to him, same conversation. And I go, you know what, Bob? I talked to Lulu, and I talked to Sherry, 
and they told me this stuff, and they weren't telling me the truth. I said, are you telling me the truth? He said, we cannot lie here. I said, really? She says, yes, because, he says, yes, because these conversations are recorded, so therefore we cannot lie. I didn't know that, you know. So um, I said, you better be telling me. He said, you can rest assured you'll get a, another bill in the mail. So we're into November now. I get another bill in the mail. It's just like, open it up, $104.95. I just ignore this one. Then I start getting phone calls. And the phone call, you know, they go, please call at I call AT&T. They said, how much um, of the 104, you know, they said, Will you, do you want to, wish to pay the $104.95 right now? I said, no, it's an incorrect number. And they said, how much would you like to pay of the $104.95? So I blocked uh, their number. You know, think of me as God, okay? Not just an ordinary victim of a company, right? If I were God, AT&T is like the way we treat God, right? They're testing my patience. They're just trying this, and they're trying that, and they're waiting for me to do something. Now, in my position, I can't do anything, I don't think, but, but God can. And, and he's saying, you know what? That's a, that's a serious thing. Testing God is like continued deliberate sin. He says in verse uh, 20, this is Hebrews, actually, 10. That's a mistake on the screen. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning, after we have received knowledge of, of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover the, these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. Is that the scariest verse ever? You know, he's saying, you know what? Continue deliberate sin. Now, understand, the vast majority of sins we commit are not deliberate sins, right? They're typically like spur-of-the-moment stuff, it was like weakness, all of a sudden we blew up or whatever the whole thing was. But there are times when we go like, you know, I know this is wrong, but I like this too much, and I'm just going to do it anyway. You know, it's like the kid that looks you in the eye when you've said, watch out, don't spill your milk, and they look you in the eye and they go, <laughs> like, what are you going to do about it, bub? And it's like, we're doing the same thing right here. That's, that's a kind of deliberate sin. But it isn't just deliberate sin, it's continued deliberate sin. It's like this pattern of knowing that this is wrong, wrong, and offensive to God, and we continue it anyway. That's testing God. Dangerous, dangerous stuff. It's a sign that our hearts are getting hard, and we don't want to go in that direction. And Paul's saying, if you're seeing this in your life, that callousness and stuff. Be aware, do something, do something. The last thing right here he talks about is the despair that comes. And so he talks about them getting to the point of just grumbling and then they, and bearing the consequences for that. And I think after we go through this whole idea here of first of all, uh, you know, just idolatry and then there's that, that kind of yielding to disobedience and then there's that idea of testing God. We eventually come to the point where we're going, like, what can I do? You know, and we start losing our faith that God really knows what he's doing, and we start feeling that despair. You know, the classic example of that from literature is the story of Macbeth. Macbeth, at the beginning uh, of the play, is a, he's a respected guy. He's a good guy. 
But what happens is he has this idol in his heart, and it's that idol of ambition. He wants to be the king. I can't live without this, he thinks to himself. And then he finally gets, he, he starts thinking, you know what? I think I can get away with this. I don't think there's anybody that's going to punish me for it. And so he yields to these violent desires that he's got, assassinates the king, eliminates people, and he gets to be the king. And it, in the middle of the play, there's a certain point where he's getting nightmares because of this. It's like the demonic enters, right? And he's having these nightmares and these day terrors, and he's seeing these like horrific visions and stuff. And he says, he starts thinking, maybe I should repent. Maybe I should really turn away from the stuff. And then he says this. He goes, to go any farther with this, I mean, to go back to where I was and to repent would be too tedious. I've gone too far. And he makes it his goal after that to just not be afraid and to not be sensitive to it and just to roll on. When we finally get toward the end of the play, we come to the last act and his wife commits suicide. And Macbeth looks at her body, and he starts thinking to himself, life has no meaning. It's just stupid. It's just dumb. And then he says, it's like a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. That's despair. That's despair. That's the same thing that Alexander Solzhenitsyn felt when he was in, in the Soviet gulag. He had been uh, fighting. He fought for the, the Russian army against Hitler, loyal to his country in World War II, but he was captured by the Germans. And what happened next? Well, they, when the war ended, he was repatriated back to Russia. But you know what Stalin did with all the people who were returned prisoners of war? He, he sentenced them to the gulag, the prison camps, the concentration camps for five-year sentences. They all were sent to Siberia because he thought, you know, some of these guys could be turncoats. They could have been used by the Germans. You know, maybe they're secretly on the German side. And so here he is, a loyal soldier, POW, repatriated, and he ends up in the gulag. And this is a picture from when he was there. You can see the despair in his eyes, can't you? And um, one day he said, I, I can't take it anymore. And he, he was going out on the work detail, and he said, I'm just going to lean on my shovel and refuse to work and let the guards come over and beat me to death. That's despair. That's despair. Paul's going, man, at that point, that's a warning sign. If when you stop believing that God's got the situation in hand, that he's really controlling it for your good, he's saying, beware when you get to that point. What are we going to do? You know, how do we deal with this situation? Our, our tendencies to, to be wayward like this. You know what pulls us through? is the true hope that resides in Jesus. And Paul goes on here, and in verse 11, he says, these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. You know, that's what the Old Testament is about, isn't it? One of the big purposes is, is that, hey, these are, these are warnings to us in our life so that we take heed. And then he says this, if you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. You know, I think we live in the American church here. We become real overconfident, I think. You know, we've been told again and again, you know, about the grace of God and how we're special and how he loves us and, and we've, you know, that he has forgiven all our sins and he sees us as in that light. And all of that is true. 
But you hear that enough times, I think sometimes you start getting kind of uh, presumptuous, right? We start going, you know what, I can go my own way, and, and, but I'm cool, I'm good. And we've kind of got this big esteem for ourselves, you know, and it causes us sometimes to get so lazy and so unproductive and so casual about sin, you know, casual about offending God. And Paul's saying, hey, take this seriously. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. And then he says, here's the key, that God is faithful. We've got a hope in our God. He says the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. He's saying, you know, these things that he's warning us about that they went through back then, these are things that we all share in common, these tendencies to go down this road. But he says, God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. And when you're tempted, he will show you a way out so you can endure. You know that he will show you the way out. Let me tell you a, a quick story here about this man right here. Thomas Wolfe, guy who was living in San Francisco, he had a bad back problem. And when his prescription for oxycodone ran out, he went back, he tried all kinds of places to get it renewed. He couldn't get it renewed. And so he Googled, how do I find drugs in San Francisco? And the Google replied, and one of the things they suggested was go to the Tenderloin District, which is what you're seeing there on the screen. He went down there and had no trouble scoring the drugs that he wanted. And this became a regular pattern. It cost a lot of money. And eventually he stopped paying on his mortgage. His fa he lost his family. He became, his life all became about drugs. He went from, from playing pills to becoming a heroin addict, and he ended up living on the street. And when he would try to get help, he would go to places, but they were called harm reduction centers. That was the attitude in San Francisco. And all they do is give him, you know, free, clean, new drug paraphernalia so that he could do his habit, they said, with dignity. And so this, this process got worse and worse. And, and um, he even saw that sometimes the city would provide free drugs for addicts who were living on the street as well. And so... He knew that he had to do something, but this situation was getting more and more desperate. And then what happened was, the best thing that could have happened, he finally, oh, by the way, he found out that uh, if you're going to steal to support a drug habit, no problem in California. Up to $950 you can steal with it just being a misdemeanor. So you could just continue doing that. And so everything was working against him, but finally he ended up going to jail. You know, he had just had sold too much stuff to try to support him the habit. And when he was in jail, he was forced to go through a detox program. And while he was in that program, he found a Bible somebody had thrown in the trash. So he opens up this Bible, and he, he finds this passage that somebody had highlighted. And the passage was from Romans 5, verse 5. And it was talking about the love of God for him. And it said, and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And he all of a sudden he realized, he, he thought, you know what? It's not about me making this happen. It's not about me exerting my efforts. That's not going to get it done, but God's power is what can make it happen. And he's for me. And here's the supernatural power and this love. 
and, and he's going to take this burden off of me. It was the way out. It was like, I'm not going down a cul-de-sac after all that's just going to end in a dead end, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. And that gave him the hope to start on a real program of deliverance and recovery. And today, this, this picture was taken. He's been uh, 28 months sober, and he's working as an a activist trying to help people get out of this lifestyle and showing him the love of Christ. Showed him the way out. So that you can endure, so that you can stand up under it, so you can bear it. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was leaning on the shovel, waiting to get beaten to death. And another prisoner, quickly seeing his situation, came along and with his shovel, drew a quick cross in the dirt at Alexander Solzhenitsyn's feet, and then quickly covered it up before the guard could see it. And Solzhenitsyn said, later on when he wrote about this, he said, my entire being was energized by that reminder of the hope and courage we have in Christ. You know, that's that idea that we can endure because it's going to be painful sometimes to turn back from the ways that we've been going. Painful to fight those temptations. Painful to move on in our lives and to deal with the situations as they are. And there are times in our lives where we just feel so hopeless. It's like things have just gone so badly in our situation. And he's saying, you know what? In Jesus Christ, we see that there's light at that end of the tunnel and that it's, it's going to work out for good somehow, some way. And he's going to give us that strength so that we can endure. Let's pray. Lord, um, I just want to pray today uh, for those who are at this point in their lives just feel like some of these warning signs point to them. I just want to pray, Lord, that you would just draw us away from these things that tend to keep us from finishing the race, that you would strengthen us and encourage us. I want to pray for those who are feeling like they're in a hopeless situation, feeling a piece of that despair that Thomas Wolfe felt, that, that Alexander Solzhenitsyn felt. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our eyes to who you are and how much you care for us and how you've got a hope for us. And I pray for those who are walking in complacency, and I, I see myself drifting into this so often. And Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would get our attention, that you would wake us up, that you would, that you would uh, do what uh, we can't do in our own strength. Lord, I, I, uh, I just am so grateful for the way that you look after us and you restore your lost sheep. And I pray that all of us would be able to finish that race and to finish it strong. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.